I'm sitting in a gross Airbnb in Bangkok. It's the one room that has air conditioning, and the moment I leave it, I'm hit with a wall of humidity and city stench. The smell of this city is biting. As I walked on the streets, the sun blasted on me, and I would hopscotch from one air-conditioned building to the next. I would hunt for 7-Elevens like they're a rare bird in the jungle, constantly on the lookout for that red, orange, and green decoration, just to cool down for a second. The only time a wind would pass through, it would carry the sour odor of hot, rotting food, human sweat, and feces. My New York legs wanted to keep walking, but Bangkok moved differently. Their pedestrians were replaced by motorbikes, and I didn't get that system. Everything I wanted to do was so far away from each other. I wasn't having fun. When I got back to my Airbnb, I vented to my partner on FaceTime. I missed him so much. We had just started dating, but our connection felt really intense. We met happenstance at a friend's birthday Halloween party a few months prior. He said that he had seen me at previous parties, but he thought I was with someone, so he didn't come up to me. But he said that the moment he saw me, he thought I was his dream girl. It crushed me when he said that. Ugh. So I'm sitting on my bed in Bangkok, positioning myself so the air conditioner blasts on my body. He asked me about my time there, and I'm, I try to be generous. I tell him it's not, it's not singing to me. I'm kind of having a rough time here. He then mentioned that one of his roommates, Grace, was also in Bangkok for a conference. I had only met her a few times in passing, and to be honest, I wasn't sure if she liked me. Of the few times that we were in the same room, she seemed a little standoffish, and I felt like I was always invading her space. Which I get, I'm, I'm kind of the same way when I'm at home. I didn't really know her other than this one degree of separation. And I wasn't lonely or anything, I just didn't want to be there anymore. So I told my partner, I was like, no, it's, it's okay, I don't, I'm, I'm leaving soon anyways. I took a screenshot of his face because he looked really cute. Then we said we miss each other and I signed off. Two days later, I'm in Chiang Mai, home of elephants and expats. I'm relieved because it's so much cooler here. It's in the mountains and I'm more of a mountain lady than a beach lady, so I feel more at home here. My first night, I take a dip in the pool and work on this exact episode. I look up temples and coffee shops that I want to visit the next day in my cool, quiet room. The next morning, I make my way into the city. I hop out of my grab and begin to walk down the street. I look down at my phone to see the direction I'm supposed to be going in and start walking down this wide sidewalk. Oh, I love how much space there is here. I can finally stretch my arms out. Down the road, I see another white girl walking towards me. She was a redhead about my size and rocking elephant pants and a flowy kimono. Now, Chiang Mai is filled with expats, but my brain picks something up. I think that the brain can recognize bodies even if we haven't been around them for very long. We quickly become familiar with people's idiosyncrasies, their gait, the shuffling of their feet, even if we're not conscious of it. And the body coming towards me did not seem new. We passed each other, and I paused, and I'm like... Okay, the worst that I could do is embarrass myself in front of a stranger. So I turn 180 and shout out, Grace! And she's already turned around to shout out my name. We run up to each other and collapse into each other's arms. We hug each other the way that you hug people you've known since childhood and haven't seen in years. It was long and tight, 
overwhelmed by excitement and anticipation. Then we take a step back, look at each other in the face just to double check that this is happening, laugh and hug each other again. Out of all of the countries to visit during that one week out of the year, and all the cities in that country, and all the streets to be walking on in that city, and all the hours of the day to be walking down that street, we happen to walk on the same one. I could do the math, but I don't care. But actually, what are the chances? How This is insane. I thought, okay, the universe is trying to tell me something. I, I mean, I have a psych degree. I know all about the probability and humans wanting to find order in the world, but this was different. This had to mean something more than just statistics and humans looking for meaning. Maybe bumping into Grace meant that being with my partner is the right idea. It was like a thumbs up from the universe saying, you're on your way, this is the guy. I mean, we'd only been dating for a few months, but our connection was so intense. Now, this was not my first travel coincidence, but I've had a ton of these happen to me all over the globe in the most unsuspecting places. But maybe I hadn't paid attention to those other times as closely as I should have. Maybe this time, I should see the larger significance. It couldn't just be a fluke. I wanted to do an episode on travel coincidences because they're so commonplace and really fun. I love how easily our minds are blown when we're someplace new and we find the one thing that is surprisingly familiar. It's so exciting and possibly a little too much for our brains to handle. Today on the podcast, we talk about travel coincidences, those random moments you bump into someone from home when you're both thousands of miles away from it. What does this mean? Are we part of something that our brains can't understand? And can we base our life choices around a singular random chance? In this episode, I'm going to use the term the universe to explain what these underlying energies are that might be at play. Do I know it's the universe or is it just my brain tweaking out? Let's take a chance and find out. I'm Adrienne Bain and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. Okay, so what is a coincidence, exactly? Social scientists believe that it's a moment that's completely surprising and meaningful to the person, but there's real no causal connection to why someone bumps into somebody else. At first glance, they're just random, surprising and unexpected. But once we start to notice them, they might shift us into a different frame of mind, one that believes that there's something larger at play. But humans do have a predisposition to seeing patterns, whether or not they actually exist. It's our way to create order. In a world of chaos, we're trying to keep it tidy. But coincidences have a way of straddling both worlds, the scientific and the divine. They feel like we've passed through a wrinkle in the cosmos. Like ghosts or aliens, people might not believe in them until it starts happening. Jan Ilunga, a podcasting guru, didn't believe in them at first. When people say the world is a very small place, I've always been like, yeah, yeah, right, like almost in a dismissive way. And also about coincidences, I've always been like, yeah, well, I don't believe in coincidences. Actually, I also heard yesterday somebody was like, I don't believe in coincidences. When Jan was doing his master's in his homeland of Finland, he was working under a professor named Mina. She spent half of her time in Finland and the other half in the States. As they worked together, he joined her at a conference in Denver where there were going to be lots of people from all over the world presenting and networking in their community. Mina introduced him to all kinds of people. 
I think it's the annual conference of the Association of Internet Researchers. And I went all the way from Finland. And I met a guy from the UK. His name is Des. We were both speaking at the same conference. And she had been connected or been on panel on other conferences. And she had known Des from those conferences. So I connected with Des kind of through me nice name of the professor I collaborated with. And yeah, he's a professor. I mean, I think he's still teaching uh, from London. I think he's in his mid-50s. And like pretty, pretty relaxed guy. I mean, I think we had maybe lunch together as a group. And, and that's it. And since it was my first time in the States, and Denver isn't maybe one, is a beautiful place, but it's not maybe one of the kind of sexiest destinations, or it's not the first destination one would pick, and Denver itself, not even Denver and the Rockies, just Denver. I said to myself, well, let's do, let's do New York first, because I'd never been to, to the States. So New York, and then Denver, and then I would have continued to San Diego first, rented a car there, LA and San Francisco. San Francisco was my last stop. And I'd been around before. For example, I lived in Canada for half a year. It was years before that. And sometimes it happens to me to see, when I'm around the world, to see people who look exactly like somebody I know, whether it's from Switzerland, it's from Finland, whatever. And typically what I do is I say to myself, wow, that girl there really looks like Adrian. Really. And sometimes I remember in Canada once sitting on a bus, seeing somebody that looked like somebody that I knew, and I said, I need to see if it's her. So I kind of moved a bit to see her kind of her side, the profile, but it stopped there. And for the first time in my life, I'm walking the streets of San Francisco at like 11 p.m. or something, and I'm not in any hotspot or any tourist attraction like the Golden Gate or something like that. And I see somebody from far, and I look, and I don't wear contacts, and I... I have a pretty good eyesight, but for example, in the evening, from far, or if I'm driving, I, I wear glasses. And I, so it, it was evening, I didn't have my glasses, and I saw one person walking toward me. It was maybe some, well, I only know meters, so it was some 30, 40 meters from me. And I was checking, I was like, man, that guy really looks like this. I, I was saying to myself, as he's walking toward me. And then I start kind of saying, it's him. No, it's not. It's him. No, it's not. And this, I've done this kind of, I've gone through this thought process before in the past. But this time, if in the past I've only thought about it in my head, I'm not sure what happened. But as this person walked by, by instinct, I said, hey, Des. And as soon as I finished that sentence, I said to myself, oh, man, I'm going to look like such an idiot. And so I turn, and as I'm turning, no, not true, I didn't turn. I kind of, I was like this, and I said, hey, Des, but then I turned. And then I hear, John? And so I turned, I was like, so it is you. And basically, Des came all the way from the UK, and we had met in, in Denver for the conference. But then, that's it, I thought he, he had gone back to the UK. He thought I had gone back to Finland. Instead, I continued traveling, as I, as I was saying, just for fun. And I think he was attending another conference or, or had a meeting or something. But it's so crazy that two people from Europe accidentally bumped into each other in the streets of San Francisco. And again, not in a popular area where you say, well, maybe, you know, something or a place like the Golden Gate. You know, there are thousands and thousands of people each week. So with so many people, the chances of meeting are higher. No, we just met in some random street.
so I don't know him that well. Mm -hmm. But of course, if he were to accidentally walk in front of us right now, I'd be able to recognize him and say, hey, there's again, it's happening again, really? <laughs> I think that coincidences are fun because our brains kind of tweak out for a second. It's a combination of the unlikely, the surprise, and experiencing something familiar in an unfamiliar space. We project our own meaning onto the event. Because, I mean, we walk by tons of people every day, and I don't freak out every time somebody walks by me because, well, they don't have any meaning to me. But a strong enough coincidence can make you believe that something larger is at play. Carl Jung coined the term synchronicity, he hypothesized that meaningful events could not be explained away by cause and effect. He believed in something more. Synchronicity creates these meaningful coincidences and could be a peek into the nexus that everyone is connected to, a collective consciousness, one world. That somehow this moment was exposing the universe's intentions for you to decode. I felt further committed to my relationship after another chance coincidence, once I was back in New York, I was on my computer and needed to send my partner an email, something we didn't really do. As I searched for his name, I saw two emails pop up, one dated back to 2016. That's weird, I didn't know him then. So I clicked on it and reread a long email chain between the two of us. Apparently, a landlord was trying to set us up as potential roommates for an apartment in Brooklyn. I scrolled through this epic conversation between him and I. I mean, it was so intimate. We were telling each other our lives, and it seemed like an okay Cupid conversation. But we never met. The week before I was supposed to meet him, I found housing and moved down to Sunset Park. We wouldn't meet for another two years at that friend's party. This was nuts. The universe had put us so close together and then pulled us apart, and now we were together. Maybe the timing wasn't right for us then. Maybe we weren't ready, but now we were. This has to be it. I felt like the universe was saying that this is the right direction, keep going. I know I shouldn't overinterpret it, but come on, this had to mean something. When these coincidences arise, we might believe that the universe is confirming our decisions or maybe shaking us into our senses. And when we're going down the wrong path, the universe can be pretty blunt about it. Okay, so is the level okay? Yeah, level's good. Okay, sibilant, um, sibilant, sibilant. Final tap. <laughs> my referencing a, my favorite movie. Sandy Marks, a New York City storyteller, shares a time where the universe might have been telling her to wake up. My two babies were born in 1988, and I had twins. And they were adorable and gorgeous, and I wanted to show them off to the entire family, which included my husband Brendan's sister and brother-in-law, and their two kids, but they happened to live in Palo Alto, which is quite far away from New York, and it's very hard traveling with babies. So I decided that I needed to wait until my babies were old enough and mature enough to be on a flight on an airplane. So I waited until they were nine months old. Not old enough, but I'm an asshole. What do I know? So I decide, yeah, this will work. So we pack them up. We pack ourselves up with all the stuff that goes along with twins that are that young. It's like you're leaving for a year, even though it was truly only for five days. And we get on that plane, and I had this misdirected view that flight attendants and other passengers would be so happy to see my twins that they'd want to hold them, they'd want to play with them so I could go to the bathroom. 
this is not how it goes, ever. And it could be because they both had those big snot bubbles because they had a cold, and one of them kind of smelled like old cheese. I don't know, but it was a disaster. And if you've never tried to change a baby's diaper in a bathroom uh, on a flight, it gives an entirely new meaning to the Mile High Club. Okay, so finally we land in San Francisco. We are bedraggled. We are exhausted. We are dirty. We smell like very old diapers and shame. And we get off that plane with our double stroller and our booster seats and our huge diaper bag. And I swear to fa- I swear there was like Pepperidge Farm uh, uh, goldfish cheesy snacks in everybody's hair because it's the only food I could consume while I was watching these babies. And we look like, you know, like can you imagine what people, when they arrived at Ellis Island, look like when they limp over for their lice check well that's what we look like and we limp our way out with our stroller and our backpacks and there I see a shiny minivan one of those caravan minivans with Audrey god bless her my sister-in-law with her athletically toned calves in her little romper and her husband Joe and their two very clean adorable sons even their hair was clean around the same age maybe slightly older than our girls they were babies and they were perfect and she slides open the door on that goddamn minivan and we all climb in and I really did feel like the war of the wounded because I was this was like a six and a half hour flight with these two miserable little babies miserable they were assholes so okay we drive to their house in Palo Alto I am barely speaking because I'm so tired all I want to do is curl up in a ball and suck my thumb and we get to their very sweet little house in their lovely little neighborhood And Audrey then presents us with a schedule of events that are going to happen. There is a complete written curriculum for us because that's how she rolls. This is the kind of woman who, like, rolls her own hemp and shit and, like, makes the furniture and the children cannot play with plastic toys. She's the opposite of me. I parked my children in front of Barney at the time. So I'm like the antichrist of mothers to her. But I don't care. That's who I am. I work full time. If she doesn't like it, shove it. She's a home mom. Big difference. So she tells us that we're going to be doing all kinds of activities. And I'm shaking my head yes up and down, but I'm thinking, no friggin' way. Am I going to get these babies to go do this stuff? There's going to be the Rodin Sculpture Garden at Stanford, which is just blocks from their house. We're going to downtown San Francisco. We're going to go to Chinatown. Oh, we're going to spend a day in Santa Cruz. And then we're going to do all sorts of other fabulous activities. And I'm thinking, this woman is out of her fucking mind. But what am I going to do? We are guests in their home, and they set up a playpen for our kids to sleep in the living room, and I am just, all I want to do is go to sleep. So we start following the rules, and the next morning I am awoken, like it's like 6 in the morning, to the smell of bran baking because she made fresh muffins, the bitch. I cannot believe it. She's so completely overly adequate at this shit. And if believe me, if there was gluten-free at the time, there wouldn't have been gluten. But at the time, gluten wasn't a thing. I was like, I was surprised she didn't serve it on a dish that she had turned on a pottery wheel the week before. So we're eating and thinking like, oh, this is great. And I'm thinking, oh, God. And my kids are sucking down their sugary apple juice bottles while her kids are drinking some sort of high-protein shakes. I don't know. She's such a show-off. My babies are drinking still from their bottles. They're not even a year old. Her sons are sipping sippy cups. Those little bastards. Sippy cups. She probably claimed that they were reading at this point, but I don't remember. All right, so the first day is fine. We go to Stanford. We look at the the sculptures. They're great. It's Rodin. What's not to love? Things are fine. We're all getting along, sort of. I don't really like them, but, you know, I'm the bitchy sister-in-law. I'm supposed to be nice. 
Things are fine. The next day, my kids start getting sick, and I take this as a sign from God. I'm so happy, and I know that's a horrible thing to say because I'm a horrible mother, but I'm thinking I'm going to get a hall pass because these kids might be really sick. Well, we don't because... Um, Audrey gets us to her pediatrician because, of course, she has one on call all the time because she's the perfect mother. And it turns out that they have ear infections, which is not unusual, and they're put right away on antibiotics, and they start feeling better. Goddamn kids are feeling better. So we then go to Chinatown and do all these other activities in San Francisco. It's fine, but I really, all I really want to do is take a nap because I'm on vacation from my job job, and now I'm thinking I'm so tired from all the stuff that you have to do with babies on a vacation with this hyperactive sister-in-law. So it's day three. It's a beautiful day. And now we're supposed to drive to Santa Cruz. And thank God, thank God, my kids start feeling really sick again. It's like a sign from Jesus, even though I don't know who Jesus is, but this is a sign. They are not well at all. And I say to Audrey, you know what? It sounds like a lot of fun going to Santa Cruz, but I'm going to stay back with the kids because they really are too sick to travel. And then Brendan, my husband, says, I agree. I don't want to go either. And then Audrey says, well, I don't need to go to Santa Cruz. I live out here. We'll all stay home. And I'm thinking, this is great. So we hang out at the house, and we decide to go for a long stroll in the late afternoon to her local playground, which is like two blocks away. And I'm finally happy. This is something I can get on board doing very little. Put the kids in the stroller, you wheel them over there, you stick them in a swing. This is a low maintenance activity. Now, it also happened to be the World Series. And Brent, uh, Brendan and Joe wanted to do some pre gaming and planning for our little you know, party, our World Series party at home. So they went out to buy the Cheetos and the Doritos, and I'm sure she made sure they were all bran or something. So they go out and they probably went to get beer, which probably didn't have yeast in it, while we are at the playground. And we're having fun, and we're actually starting to bond. I'm starting to like this bitch. It's starting to be okay. The kids are finally, the antibiotics are really hooking up and helping them. Everybody's swinging on the swings. And then all of a sudden, I hear the New York subway in California. That's what it sounded like. The loud roar of like the BMT roaring through. And within a second, I look up and all I see is the sidewalk in front of the playground literally lifting and rolling like as if there were waves in an ocean. And at that second, Audrey yells, earthquake earthquake. Now, I didn't know what an earthquake was supposed to be like. I had never been in one, but apparently this was a big earthquake. It was the San Francisco earthquake. So she and I grab the children out of the swings, and we throw them into a, um, a sandbox, and we throw our bodies on top of them, because what we also had noticed were cars were rocking off their axles on the street so hard that we thought, like, think Twister and Helen Hunt and shit. We're thinking that those those cars are going to f- come flipping off like a cow twirling, and they're going to come and hit us. Meanwhile, everything is flying everywhere. Like, our stroller was in another county at this point. Like, it was a mess. We were shaking. Now, it seemed like it had gone on for hours. It was probably no more than 40 seconds. But it was so terrifying to us. Now, our kids are looking at us like, what is this, like a new game? Because they didn't understand, maybe because they were on the swings and their equilibrium was off, or maybe they're just stupid. They didn't know what was going on. So they had no problem. Like, they thought this was a fun game. We were like white as ghosts. So we quickly, but when it stopped, we threw the kids back into their strollers, which took time because I had a fine mine, which was like halfway up somebody's tree, like two blocks away. We retrieved the strollers. We strapped those kids in, and we run as fast as we can back to her house because we don't know what damage has been done to her property. And the kids are yelling like, wee, like they're so happy, and we're yelling, woo, 
Okay, so we get to her house, and there we find Joe and my husband Brendan picking up shards of glass and picking up photographs and picking up all their her hideous kids art projects and all those papers from all of our curriculum building for the week everything was in a pile television set down and broken everything flown everywhere it was a disaster now the power had already been turned off because people had smelled gas in the neighborhood it was a real disaster zone and we were flipping out so we somehow managed to get a radio and started listening to coverage and I started shaking because I had heard that one of the worst areas of disaster was on this one particular bridge. And people in like their cars and minivans were being crushed because the whole bridge had collapsed. And what I realized at that moment was that that was the bridge we would have been on to go to Santa Cruz at that very same time. So I just started sobbing because our kids had basically saved us from being killed in an earthquake just because they had ear infections. So the rest of the night we were shaking and somehow, I don't know how, because we didn't have cell phones back then. This is like 1989, but somehow we were able to, I think we drove to the airport and were able to get on the first American Airlines flight the next day back out. And we couldn't get out of there fast enough. Now me, I wanted to get out of there, not because I was worried about aftershocks, I just couldn't stand being in this situation for another day with my very bossy sister-in-law. But Brendan was just wanted to get the kids out of there and they still weren't well. And I started thinking, maybe they're like dogs, like when they hear things, they get an ear infection. Like maybe they sensed the earthquake was coming and that's why they had an ear infection. I don't know, I just made that up. So anyway, so we get to the airport we get back on that flight we are such a mess we look worse than when we first got there I now know I need a vacation from this vacation and we smell my kids smell so bad because they had been sick so they were throwing up and they had diarrhea and like their diapers like their diaper was like up to their neck you know it was that bad so nobody even wanted to be near us and we got off the flight there was a huge press corps there we were the first flight out and they wanted to interview people who made it out of the earthquake everyone stayed so clear of us and I'm thinking why my kids are so adorable but we smelled we were awful so we got home it took us weeks to recover my kids they were no worse for the wear but it was really one of the most horrifying experiences okay so I forget about it because things happen you know you read about it and go it's a news story for a few weeks and then the news cycle changes and there's some other worse disaster so a few years pass and I don't know why I did this I must have been really stupid or drunk, but I went and had a third kid. Okay, now, I love my son. He's an adult now, but at the time, I was thinking, like, what the fuck have you done? But anyway, I had this kid, and now I am really not myself anymore. I'm still working full-time. Each child has taken a piece of me. I mean, I am just lesser than, but I'm somehow surviving, and I finally decide I need a break. I'm also not really getting along all that well with my husband at this point, which stands to reason. I mean, you're raising kids. It's a misery. So I tell Brendan I need to get away, and I have a very close friend who lives in L.A. She's in the film business, and she got some time off, and she said, let's go to um, Palm Springs for the week. You come with me. We'll have lots of fun. We'll go to Two Bunch Palms, which is our favorite place. And I said, I'm on board. And I told Brendan, I didn't ask him. I said, I'm leaving town. I need four days off. I'm going to lose my mind. And he probably wanted me to go because I looked like I was going to Lorraine a Bobbitt on him. Like I, I might smother him with a pillow. Who He didn't know. But it was self-preservation. So he said, yes, go. Now, I'm not that much of a big shot because on that flight to L.A., I had my son's baby sock because he was only a year, like six months old. And I was like sniffing it because it's much easier to travel with just the baby sock than the baby because 
as I've mentioned, traveling with babies is a hellfire, hellscape. So, all right, so I get to L.A., and Leslie and I have the best time. We're in the mud baths. We're going to the hot springs. We're taking yoga classes. We're down. We're dogging. We're so happy. And on the last night before I leave, Leslie says, I'm throwing a rap party for a film that I cast, and I want you to come. It'll be really fun. The director and a lot of the actors will be there. I think the film was called Miami Rhapsody. It starred um, Sarah Jessica Parker. It was a great movie little movie so I say great this is so much fun and we have the best time and I'm thinking yes yes life is so good I'm back I'm like feeling like myself again before I had kids before all this crap got, you know and oh, so finally I went to bed that night and I was so peaceful and I thought yes now I'm starting to really miss my family this is what I needed I needed to be away for a few days to really miss my children even my husband and I fall into the deepest sleep because my flight's the next morning and I want to be fresh and then at around 4 o'clock, 4.15 in the morning, I hear the subway. And at first I think, am I dreaming? Am I back in my New York City apartment and it's the subway? No, wait a minute. I'm still in L.A. But I'm hearing a train. What the hell? I wake up and I've ha- above my head is one of those ceiling fans that spins. And it's weaving and bobbing. And I'm thinking oh my God, I'm in another earthquake and that fan is going to decapitate me. I'm going to be on the cover of the New York Post. New York Girls gets decapitated in L.A. by a ceiling fan. And Leslie and I, it's dark, there's no power. Leslie and I are screaming and she's yelling earthquake, just like, I guess that's code. Like if you live in L.A. or San Francisco, if it's happening, you're supposed to just, if you say it, it's like Ali Ali Siegfried. So she said, like, hold on to the door, like in the arch of a door wasn't really helping. We were both flying everywhere. Everything in our apartment's flying everywhere. It's pitch black dark. We are shaking. We don't know what to do, but we figure we better escape the apartment. Now, it's 4.30 in the morning. It's pitch black. But before we do, because she lives in L.A., she says we need to take either a Xanax or a Valium. So we go into her medicine chest, which is in ruins, and she pulls out in the dark pills, which we take to calm us down. And then we run outside. We are barefoot in our pajamas, looking, I'm not making this up, for coffee, like as if some place was open like a barista was brave enough to open up a Starbucks to serve us coffee in the middle of West Hollywood so we are wandering the streets and we're not alone there are all these people like zombies it's like the night of the living LA dead walking around in their PJs looking for help because nobody knows what to do we are freaking out and nobody can believe it when I tell them that night that morning oh this is my second major earthquake and wait I've only been in the west coast twice and I've been in both earthquakes each time. So again, I am shaking for another day until I can finally get again on the first American flight back. I cannot wait to get back at home. I'm, again, I'm so freaked out. And I'm thinking, you know, that my picture profile and front be like one of those crime photographs, you know, that you see wanted posters. If you see this woman, don't let her back into the airport if she's heading out west. I am so undone. And again, all of that two bunch palms is like worn off. Okay, so here's the thing. And I still maintain this to be true. You know, you can lean in. You can lean out. It doesn't really matter. Life is going to have a lot of bumps. So the best advice that I could offer you is just bend at your knees, okay? Hold on to a railing, okay? And just think life is going to be fine if I just go with the flow. Those are truly remarkable odds. And that type of coincidence might not be so easily explained away by some statistics on earthquakes and traveling. Needless to say, the universe had strong opinions for Sandy when it came to staying with her husband. I mean, 
we can understand that a natural disaster did not happen because Sandy was physically present. She's a very tiny woman, and her weight would not make a dent on the California landmass. But Sandy realized soon after her L.A. trip that her relationship with her current husband had to end. She's now happily married to a man who makes her feel grounded. But please, Sandy, give the state of California a warning before you fly West Coast next time. The summer with my partner was going spectacularly. I had coincidentally been able to find a sublet a four-minute walk away from his place. We would mosey back and forth between our apartments and I could stay at his place late into the evening and not have to worry about dealing with a frustrating New York City transit. I felt like we owned the neighborhood. The universe had put us together. How perfect is this? Then one night in late August, I was heading over to my partner's place after a really tough open mic. I said hey to Grace, who was in the kitchen, and my partner and I walked into his room. I loved his room. It was filled with plants and books and music. It had a window of a popular crosswalk, and I loved watching Brooklyn move around. He gave me a hug, and I lay down on his bed, a place I felt so safe in. I started to vent about the show. Then once I'm done, he says, I'm so sorry, babe, but I need to tell you something. This isn't working for me anymore. We have a great connection, but I'm not in a place to be in a relationship. No warning. No heads up. I felt the earth open up below me and swallow me whole. I'll simplify here because I don't remember everything through the pain and the tears. But what does that mean, not ready? We're so good together and our story is so... And I stopped. How much of my relationship was I basing off of my own interpretation of what was happening? Did I let these stories and our connection get in the way of us being good partners for each other? Or being ready for something bigger? When I walked home three hours later, depleted of fluids and my lashes flaking off, I thought about how maybe if I had been a bit more practical, I wouldn't have been so blindsided. Humans see patterns that don't actually exist, but we still want to project meaning onto the world. It's a way of us just feeling kind of in control. And then there's the math behind it, which is what I should have done at the beginning of the show. We often forget that we're actually on a small blue marble with limited surface area. The chances of running into people or themes repeating are pretty high. I knew this. I have a psychology degree, for God's sake. And I still let myself be taken over by my human need to find meaning. I wanted the universe to reach its hand out and tell me that I'm on the right path. So I saw what I wanted to see. But we're all guilty of it. We do it every day. In small, innocuous ways. But in moments of change, we feel more desperate for a message. A sign from the universe saying that it's looking out for us and we're going to be okay. Sam Dingman, the host of Family Ghosts podcast, shares the story of when he felt like he was asking the universe some pretty big questions. And the universe answered him but not necessarily with the response he was looking for. I had this trip planned with my ex, and we were going to go down to my mom's house in Virginia. And my mom lives in this very old house. My mom's an artist. Her house, We call the house the handmade house because it's got all these wonderful handmade features. She built all the shelves. She made all the 
tables. She made a lot of the furniture. And it's really charming in that sense. The thing that is not very charming about it is that she doesn't do a lot of upkeep because she's more interested in building interesting things to be inside the house. So that means that a lot of the wood, the house is very old, and a lot of the wood is warped and kind of it, the way it was when the house was first built. So the result of that is that the doors to the rooms don't really close because <laughs> the, the wood has shifted over the years. And the upshot of all this is that it, it's actually, even though it's a decently sized house, there's not a lot of privacy. And so something that my ex and I had found when we would spend time there together was that it was hard to, like at the end of the night, to go to like the guest room that we were staying in and like shut the door and just have time to ourselves. And I don't even mean that in a sex way. I mean, I do mean it that way, but I also mean it in the way of like, just to be able to have a conversation where it's like, that was a lot today dealing with family dynamics or whatever, or, or something like that. And so we had come up with this idea, which is the third floor of our house was built much later. And that's where my childhood bedroom was. And that was much newer construction. And so it had a door that closed. It was three floors up. So it was much more private. But the reason we never spent time in there is because I basically walked out that door when I was 18 to go to college and have never returned. <laughs> so it still looks like an 18-year-old boy's room, which means it has like old baseball jerseys everywhere and comic books. And so the room is covered in all of this detritus most of which is baseball-themed because the greatest thing I could possibly imagine happening in a young boy's life is to visit all, at the time, I think it was 28 Major League Baseball stadiums over the course of life. That was my greatest dream. Not a super clean romantic setting, let us say. So we had come up with this plan that for future visits, if we just took a weekend and cleaned that room out, then we would have a space that we could use. So we had this weekend plan, this specific weekend plan. It was August of 2014. And we were going to go down there and we were going to do it. And then we broke up. And I was really distraught because this was, at the time, the most serious that I had ever felt about another person. It was the first time I had ever felt like I could really see a future with somebody. And I was just really, really devastated. And it was one of those things, you know how sometimes when you go through a breakup, it kind of like wipes your brain and you go into maintenance mode. And you're only thinking about the thing that's five minutes ahead of you and you're just kind of trying to get through the day. So I forgot that we had planned this trip. The breakup happened in, I think, July. And I forgot that we had planned this trip. So... I woke up one day on a Friday and realized that I was supposed to drive home for this visit. Um, and because I had, when we were still together, because I had known I was going to be there, I had made plans to have lunch with my dad. My mom was out of town, which is why we thought we could spend some time in the house cleaning things out without getting in anyone's way. Um, and I thought, well, I guess I'll go down there and I'll still have lunch with my dad. On This was Friday. So I was like, I'll drive down on Friday. I'll wake up on Saturday. I'll have lunch with my dad. And then you know, I'll figure out something else to do. So I wake up on, I get to Alexandria. I wake up on Saturday. I have lunch with my dad. 
He asks me how things are going. I kind of tell him the whole story. Puts me in a pretty down place. And then I go out and I, I walk out to my car and I just feel this overwhelming sense of like, I have to get out of this town. Like the whole per reason I'm here on this weekend is because I was supposed to do this thing with my ex that I was so excited about. That's the only reason I'm here. And because she is not here, I, I can't physically be in this space. And I don't want to go back to my apartment because that's where we used to live together. So I don't want to be in that space either. Where am I going to go? So I decide I'm going to go to Cleveland, <laughs> um, which sounds a little bit random. But the reason that I decided to go to Cleveland is um, I love baseball very, very deeply. Um, as a matter of fact, at this time, I had a baseball podcast that I hosted with a friend of mine that was all about the Baltimore Orioles, my favorite team. And in per particularly in the midst of this breakup, that podcast had been and baseball had been a huge source of comfort to me. Um, just getting to spend an hour and a half a week escaping anything that I had remote control over in my life and talking about this collection of 25 men I will never meet who I've decided to invest all of my emotional well-being in. <laughs> so, um, and I hadn't been to see an Orioles game at all that summer, which I usually try to make a point of getting to see at least a couple. And I knew that they were in Cleveland that night, and I had never been to Progressive Field, which is where the Cleveland professional baseball team plays. And I just had this thought, like, what if I just went to Cleveland? The game starts at 7. I think it was like noon. And I was like, can I make it to Cleveland in seven hours? So I, I remember I was sitting in the parking lot outside the restaurant where I had just had lunch with my dad. And I opened up Google Maps and I put in Progressive Field. And it said estimated time of arrival if you leave right now, 7.02. And the game started at 7.05. And I just pulled out of the parking lot and started driving to Cleveland. <laughs> Now I realize that some people might hear me say that I made this snap decision to drive seven hours into the industrial Midwest <laughs> and have no relationship to making that choice. Like have no connection to the idea of wanting to be in the car by yourself for that long to go to a baseball game that for all you know might be sold out um, and where your team is likely to lose. Um, <laughs> But what you need to know about me is that driving is actually my favorite thing to do in the entire world. Nothing makes me happier. Nothing makes me feel more like myself. I think I got like three hours into the trip when I started to realize this is a little bit crazy. Like this is real impulsive. It's not like Cleveland is a super dangerous place where I'm going to get kidnapped or it, it's not like I was going somewhere that was dangerous, but I wasn't going there in a particularly good emotional state. Um, I had had like two beers at lunch with my dad <laughs> and I was driving real fast because I wanted to get there for the first pitch. So I thought I should probably just call some people and tell them uh, that I'm going to Cleveland. So I started doing that and I got a lot of like, you're doing what? Why? Why are you doing that? You realize you're going to have to drive back from Cleveland. And they were like, okay, well, just, just be careful. So I drive and I drive and I drive and I drive. I get a speeding ticket at one point, but 
um, I still make it to Progressive Field in time for the first pitch of the game. I park the car, and I go running into this baseball stadium in downtown Cleveland. I buy a ticket at the gate. I tell myself, like, you just drove all the way here. You're going to get yourself a nice ticket for this game. So I got, like, field-level seats um, just behind home plate, and I go walking in right as the national anthem. They're finishing up singing the national anthem. And I think to myself, like, here I am. I am in Cleveland, Ohio, all by myself. I'm on an adventure. Who knows what's going to happen? I'm about to see my favorite baseball team in a place I've never seen them before. I don't know a soul in this town. So I go over and I sit down in my seat. I start watching the game. Now, um, the Orioles are a very bad baseball team. Um, and despite the fact that I had just driven whatever it was, seven or eight hours to see them in hopes that they could restore my faith in my life, um, they, it's like three innings in and they're getting absolutely smoked. They're losing like seven nothing. And I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. It's still a really great experience. Still a great experience. And, but, you know, as, the, as what's happening on the field starts to become more and more depressing... I'm, you know, just kind of like looking around, checking out my surroundings a little bit, like getting the lay of the land. And I see in front of me um, this guy, and he has an orange shirt on. And I'm like, oh, he must be an Orioles fan. That's, that's nice. There's not too many of us here. Um, and then I look a little bit closer, and I see that not only is this an orange shirt, it's an orange shirt um, that is merch from another Orioles podcast called Section 336. And that's amazing enough in and of itself because I also have an Orioles podcast, but this isn't just any other Orioles podcast. I, at the time, my Orioles podcast, which is called Baltimoreans, which I know is the coolest title that you've ever heard, um, we were in this little network of several Orioles-themed sports podcasts, one of which was Section 336. So I listened to Section 336 all the time. Um, I, and actually I emailed the guy who ran section 336. He was kind of the head of the network. His name was Josh. I emailed him every week when our episodes were ready so he could post them and do all this backend stuff. So it's crazy that the person sitting in front of me is wearing this section 336 shirt. And so I'm looking at the shirt and just kind of feeling like, oh, like a little, just a little taste of, a taste of home. Um, and as I'm looking at him, I start to like, my ears start to like zero in on his voice. And then I realize it's not just a fan of the Section 336 podcast, that's Josh. Josh, the guy I email every week, who I've never met before in real life because at the time I'm living in New York and he lives in Baltimore. So I'm, I realize in this moment, I have literally on the most random whim possible decided to drive to a baseball game in Cleveland. And not only have I ended up next to somebody with a t-shirt from a pod Orioles podcast that I listen to, but somebody who I am in regular communication with over email every week, but have never met in person. So I am first stunned, and then I lean forward, and I tap him on the shoulder, and I say, I'm really sorry are you Josh? And then he recognizes my voice because he listens to our podcast. And he says, Sam? 
And I'm like, yeah, yeah, man, it, it's me. And he's like, why are you here? And I'm like, why are you here? And he says, well, uh, my dad's on a business trip, so I just came here to see him. And he says, so, so why are you here? And before I tell you what he said, I should say that in this moment, because I was in a space of fantasy and whimsy in this, on this night, I kind of had this idea like I came here out of this impulse that was kind of fueled by loneliness. I'm in a really bad way. I've arrived in Cleveland, but I don't really have anything to do here other than go to this game. How long am I going to stay? And I had just kind of instantly written this narrative in my mind once I realized it was Josh that he and I were going to go out and have a night on the town. And we were going to really get to know each other and bond about why we care about the Orioles so much and um, trade, j just get excited about the fact that this random thing had happened. It's going to be great. So he says, why are you here? And I say, I just broke up with my girlfriend. I'm really, really distraught. Uh, I have work on Monday and I haven't even decided if I'm going to go back to New York yet. Just figured I'd come to Cleveland and, Cleveland and catch a game. And then I kind of look at him like, crazy, right? Let's go get some beers. And he kind of looks at me. And then he goes, well, it, it must be nice to have that much freedom. And then he turns around and goes back to watching the game. And I was kind of gobsmacked because I, what a weird response. I mean, from his standpoint, I later decided, I did know from listening to his show that he has three kids and his life is very different than mine. And we were both the same age at this time in life, like 32, 33. Um, but like, you know, I was an artsy, bozo New York person. Um, and he was, you know, he had a mortgage and he had these three kids. I knew that he was a person of faith um, and lived in the suburbs of Baltimore, just like a very different life. And I knew all of that, but I guess I thought, come on, like baseball brotherhood, like podcast brotherhood, like we're in Cleveland. It makes no sense that we're in Cleveland. This is a golden moment. Like, let's have an incredible time together. But he just kind of turned around and went back to watching the game. And we didn't talk the rest of the game. I think it was like the third or the fourth inning. So two thirds. There was, we were like a third of the way through the game. And at the end of the game, he kind of stood up and with his parents and said like, well, it's crazy to run into you and left. And I believe the Orioles lost like 13 to two. <laughs> and, and I just kind of stood there in this em slowly emptying out baseball stadium in Cleveland. Um, and I was like, well, this didn't work. 
I don't know what I was hoping for out of this adventure, but it it didn't happen. And by rights, like I felt like I opened myself to the whims of the universe. And the universe responded by connecting me to somebody who I shouldn't, was both a stranger and a close, and somebody close in my life at the same time. And that felt like a sign from the universe, like this was the right call. But then it just wasn't. So I've been trying to think about like, why I initially had the impulse to take this trip. And I think it has something to do with, I think I had just absorbed one too many, I don't know, romantic comedy storylines or like buddy comedy storylines where the, the storyline is, you're going through a rough time, like your heart is broken, you gotta do something big and crazy because that will somehow lead to an adventure and the adventure will show you who you really are. And in the movie, it always works out that way because that's how the movie has a plot. <laughs> but in reality, even if you have this coincidence right at the center of following this impulse that seems like it should lead to a movie plot, there's no guarantee that, like in retrospect, it makes total sense that Josh had that response because he knows nothing about my life. We're not friends. And he probably thought to himself, I could never make a decision as reckless as what Sam is doing because I have a responsibility to my fucking family. So it's offensive to me that he was able to be so casual about doing this. I'm just imagining these might be the thoughts that went through his head. But it's totally fair that he felt that way. Like there was no reason for me to expect we were gonna be like Insta buds. And I think now, at the time, this was probably the biggest relationship, like life rupture I had ever been through. Um, and I think now, I don't think I would have the same expectation. Like I think now I am aware that when something incredibly disruptive happens, it is traumatizing. You need, you need to take a lot of time with it. And the change that happens is not that you undergo some magical experience that makes the hurt go away it's that you have to build in and acknowledge the amount of time you need in your life to integrate this experience that you've been through and it takes a really and there's no shortcuts and I was looking for a shortcut do you find that his denial of you defined your experience it completely defined my experience. And why did you allow that to happen? That's a really interesting question. I think the reason I allowed it to happen is because I think I had used my last shred of self-actualization at that time in that, on that day in making the decision to drive to Cleveland. And I became so single-minded about getting there on time and going to watch this game and getting invested in the idea that this game was gonna make was gonna make everything better that I literally had not thought about any next step after that. I was so invested in the magic solution. So seeing him 
made me feel like that's it. That's the next thing. The universe is rewarding me. I don't have to be responsible for this decision that I've made because I can put all of my life on him in this moment. Hmm. And then when I was rebuffed, I had no backup plan. Do you tend to believe in coincidences? I believe in coincidences because what we would more commonly refer to as a coincidence, like Josh being at this baseball game that there was no reason to expect either of us would be at, because that feels so outside the realm of that imposed order, I think it is really tempting to interpret that as the universe smiling on you somehow or trying to convey something to you. And there's like a dream logic to it almost where like when you dream about something that's really extreme or and you wake up and you can't stop thinking about it, I think that's usually because that's your subconscious trying to tell you to focus on something or think about something. So there can be a, a reason when you experience a coincidence like that to assume that it's the same logic. So I think in that moment, what's really happening is you're being proposed a choice, which is to say, There is no explanation for this, but it's an opportunity for me to transform my thinking about whatever moment I am in. Like, hmm. it's a fork in the road, hmm. and um, you have the option to follow it, and the choice to follow the option is what I think is interesting. And that's what has meaning, is that you're at a point in your life where you want to make that choice. The coincidence itself, whatever coincidence means, has no meaning. But the fact that you're in a place where you're willing to make a different choice than you would have before is, I think, a, a powerful thing to reflect on and notice about yourself. I think we want the universe to take care of us. When we're lost or want something, we turn to it like a motherly breast to suckle on. It makes us feel connected, even if it is just random chance. Coincidences happen in so many ways, but I still don't know what they mean. They're fun for sure, but are they a message? Or did you land on the one out of 10,000 odds of bumping into someone? I would like to believe in a collective unconsciousness. The idea that there's a universal fabric underneath us at play that we have yet to access and coincidences are a glimpse into that omnipresent force. But I also know we want to see what we want to see, believe in something bigger, and it makes us act in certain ways, ways that might confirm our beliefs. These meaningful encounters are in the eye of the beholder. We can place whatever ideas we want onto them. I could have interpreted my Thai encounter as something totally different, or if I didn't know Grace, I would have just walked right by her. But as I walked around those Thai streets, I wanted to believe that my partner and I were meant to be, that the universe was slowly matching our lines to be in one unified direction, that my life had some type of story arc to it that the universe was crafting. 
But the universe doesn't care about the stories I tell myself and has no stake in confirming them. And although my ex-partner was the closest connection I've ever had with someone, our meeting was just a series of chance occurrences, and a coincidence is not a commitment. Like Sandy said, sometimes you have to hold on to whatever ride the universe takes you on and try to have fun while it lasts. After all this traveling, we're starting to see the bigger picture. We have moments where our eyes dilate, egos deflate, and our minds grow. We're overwhelmed with what we're going through and often feel tiny, humbled by what is before us. Next time on Strangers Abroad. <laughs> 